dragging. The reading today is from Samuel 11, 1, 5, 14 to 17. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged, besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while jo Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Praise be to God. Thank you for sending our pastor. Thank you for sending our pastor, Robin, to shepherd the church. I'm grateful for the love you put in the pastor's heart for you and your people. I appreciate the unique set of gifts and talents that enrich the pastor's ministry and bless our church. Would you, in return, bless the pastor today, help the pastor to sense your presence in such a sweet way, fill the pastor up, Lord, and use the pastor for your glory today and show me how I can support and encourage thanking you for this good leader. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So the One Another series ended last week. Advent starts next Sunday. Um, so I thought I'd take a mess, the opportunity to share a message that was not in either of those series. But before I start, I want to give a, a warning. Um, I'll be talking about fallen leaders in the church. All of them men all of them guilty of abusing women in one way or another. And I'm aware that statistically, um, there are probably women in this congregation 
who have experienced that, uh, possibly men too. So I just want you to be aware of where I'm going this morning uh, so you're not taking unawares or re-experienced trauma because of what I'm talking about, okay? So that's just a, a little warning. So when we were back in Canada this summer, we arrived at the end of April. I guess that'd be spring, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> this was just a few weeks after news broke that Bruxy Cavey, the teaching pastor at the Meeting House, a mega church in our area, had publicly confessed to having an affair and had been charged with sexual assault by the police. I wouldn't call Bruxy a friend. Bruxy's a really uh, extreme introvert and doesn't actually have a lot of friends. Um, but he was a colleague. And we worked together in True City, a movement um, of churches in Hamilton in Ontario. And another, um, a number of other meeting house leaders are our friends. This was just a year after the revelation that Ravi Zacharias, another Southern Ontario person, um, he's closely, was closely associated with the church that was our home church for 25 years. This is just a year after the revelation that he had systematically abused women for years, something that was concealed until after his death. And the list of leaders who have abused their positions, whether sexually or emotionally or psychologically, is long and growing. Bruxy, Ravi, Jerry Falwell Jr., Mars Hills leader Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz at Hillsong, John Smith and Jonathan Fletcher in the UK, um, the cover-ups by leaders of Canacook uh, camps and the Southern Baptists of known abusers in their midst. And as a Canadian, the revelations about abuses in church-run residential schools for First Nations children over a period of more than a century. Schools actually bore more than a passing resemblance to the re-education camps currently being run in Western China for Uyghurs. Now, I'm not going to do an exposition of the passage that was read for us this morning. Uh, it's more of a reminder that powerful men taking advantage of vulnerable, pe vulnerable people, often women, and then seeking to cover up their sin is not a new problem for God's people. And over the last few months, um, a number of people in this congregation have raised this issue with me because it's been so much in the news, or at least referred to in passing. And I know it's a real source of concern for many people. So and one of the questions is, how should we respond? Well, for starters, we should be ashamed. Shame is the appropriate response for God's people when his name is brought, brought into disrepute by their behavior. And it doesn't matter if you or I were not personally involved in the offense. If we want to enjoy the honor that rightly belongs to the church, for the difference it has made in so many lives. Marriages healed, addictions conquered, lives set free, universities, hospitals, even Western democracy, things that we also generally were, had no personal involvement in, 
If we want to enjoy the honor that goes with that, then we need to also be willing to embrace the shame that comes to the whole family of God when some of us behave abhorrently. I feel a sense of shame every time I talk about the residential school system in Canada. Despite the fact I wasn't even a Canadian at the time the system operated. But I am part of the Canadian church. And the church was deeply involved in that. And it is our corporate, our family shame that I experience. And it's a godly shame. The appropriate response when God's name is blasphemed among unbelievers because of our behavior. And it is our behavior, not their behavior. Remember what we talked about in the One Another series? Paul says, says we are members of one another. When one member hurts, all hurt. When one member rejoices, all rejoice. In 2 Corinthians 11.29, Paul says, Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. There's a debate about what Paul means by inwardly burn. It could mean anger at the cause of sin, or compassion for the sinner. But it could equally mean that Paul feels the shame of the other's sin, as you would if it were a member of your own family. And embracing the shame is one way that we can show the world that we are serious about following Jesus. That we don't sweep it under the carpet. The Meeting House in Southern Ontario has done just that. They've been open and honest about Bruxy's sin. As soon as it came to light, he was removed from ministry. Their leadership has taken, taken responsibility for not being aware of what was going on. They've carried out an internal investigation because sadly, abusive behavior in one leader often spawns similar behavior in others. And indeed, they've passed evidence on to the police of other alleged cases. They could have covered it up. Unfortunately, that seems to be the norm in many cases in Christian circles, but they didn't. And that openness and the associated embracing of the shame may save the ministry of the meeting house. It may not. We'll see. So one of the questions I've been asked more than once goes something like this. So, was everything he taught a lie? We were talking with someone who ran their church's library and they were wondering if they should remove Ravi's books from the library now that they knew about his hidden life. Now, you may disagree, but my response was, what is true is true, independent of who says it. In today's highly partisan world, it's very common to dismiss what someone says simply because they don't belong to your tribe. It's an attitude that says, we have the truth, so everyone else must be a liar, right? We apply it to theological camps in the church, political camps, in society, they're not one of us, so they must be wrong. And when a leader sins, there's a tendency to, at least mentally, excommunicate them. Overnight, they're no longer part of our tribe. This also happens on a larger scale. Muslims do it with Islamist terrorists. They're not real Muslims. 
And Christians do it with Christian terrorists like the Lord's Resistance Army in Central Africa. They're not real Christians. So we just kind of bracket them out and they no longer have anything to do with us, right? Since they're not one of us, we don't really need to deal with that shame I mentioned earlier. And with leaders, everything they taught is now suspect. We see it in the pressure in some areas of the church today to do away with the worship music from certain sources because their theology or their leadership are supposedly, supposedly suspect. But we still sing, O sacred heart now wounded, Jesus thou joy of loving hearts, and Jesus the very thought of thee by Bernard of Clairvaux, despite the fact that he was the major, major propagandist for the Crusades. And we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, despite the fact that Luther was a rabid anti-Semite. We sing those songs not because of who wrote them, but because they express, express truth about who God is. What is true is true, independent of who says it. Paul understood this. In Philippians 1, 15 to 18, he writes, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that it can stir up trouble for me while I am in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I personally gained a great deal from both Bruxy and Ravi. And I'm not about to throw that out of the window because they both fell into sin. Even though Ravi's sin was particularly bad in the sense he systematically abused multiple women in many locations over many years, he still said many things that are true. Having said that, David French of the Dispatch observes, no degree of greatness can overcome lawlessness. No degree of greatness in any realm is, gives you a free card, an exit. You know, free exit. Free, what was it? Pass, thank you. A free pass. So in Numbers 20, the people of Israel, led by Moses, are in the middle of the wilderness with no water. And the people are angry at Moses. And God gave Moses explicit instructions. Speak to the rock while the people watch, and it will yield water. Speak to the rock while the people are watching, it will yield water. But Moses was angry at the people and their rebellion against him. So he revised God's instructions and he struck the rock with his staff. Moses defied God. But the water came out anyway. The people drank. The livestock drank. They were saved from thirst. God was gracious to his people. But he barred Moses from entering the promised land because of his sin. And I think we can view the teaching that comes from fallen leaders like the water that came from the rock. God can even use the disobedient, sinning leaders to bring forth blessing for his people. What's true is true, regardless of who says it. Now, having said that, I recognize that for some of you, it's actually not about the truth or falsehood of the books. 
It's about seeing the man's name on your bookshelf and being triggered by it. Because it brings up something personal, painful for you personally. That's a whole different question. And you need to do whatever is right for your personal health, mental health. And so I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you, if you feel that you can't have these people's names on your bookshelf because of what it reminds you of in your own life, then that's absolutely appropriate. When I hear about these kinds of cases, my first response is often, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because before we sit in judgment on others, we need to be aware of our own brokenness. Because one of the challenges of being a preacher is that you can find yourself preaching beyond your experience. Let me explain. Um, I confess, as a preacher, I struggle with one of the values of my organization. That value is do first, then teach. Now, if I take that literally, then I can only preach on things I have personally incorporated fully into my Christian life. And if I'm honest with myself, that would significantly reduce the number of topics I could preach on. I certainly couldn't preach the whole counsel of God because there are multiple things I'm still working on that God is still working into my life. Um, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things, set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Christian leaders are supposed to both teach the truth and live it. But none of us are perfect. And by us, I'm referring to Christian leaders here. The reality is that sometimes <clears throat> our preaching gets ahead of our living. And that's why we need people in our lives who will ask hard questions. The questions that we'd rather not answer. Some preachers only preach their experience. It's probably most common in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. I say that as someone who self-identifies as a charismatic. It doesn't matter what the text, I'm sure some of you have heard, heard preachers like this. It doesn't matter what the text is. They always end up in one of a limited number of places because they preach their experience. Others might preach the text but not live up to it. Karl Barth, arguably the most influential theologian of the 20th century, has deeply influenced evangelical theology, mainly for, mainly for the good, even if most people haven't actually read him. But he kept a mistress. So we as Christian leaders, people like me, need to be constantly challenged to integrate our lives and our preaching, our preaching and our lives. And it's especially challenging if you develop a ministry that has you traveling and speaking to different people all the time because your audience never really knows you. I had a, heard a person tell a story one, one time of the impact one traveling teacher had on him. The teacher had talked about how he got up every morning at 5 a.m. and spent time in prayer and study. They, this person had been so impacted by that, he had implemented the same practice in his own life. A couple of years later, after, being faith, after he'd been faithfully getting up at 5 a.m. every day, he had the opportunity to visit the teacher in, in his home. So the teacher's wife answered the door and showed him into the living room because the teacher was busy in another room. The visitor was just brimming with excitement to meet the man in person. And he began to tell his wife about the impact that her husband's practice of getting up so early had had on his life. At that, 
the wife called through to her husband in the other room. Honey, remember that month when you got up really early? It's important for leaders to be held accountable. And for that, we need to be known for who we are. That can only happen if we're part of a community that allows us to be the fragile human beings that we all are. Rather than expecting us to be some kind of spiritual superhero. That brings me to my next point. We should feel the shame of the behavior of our brothers and less often our sisters. We should remind ourselves that what is true is true, independent of who says it. We should remain aware of our own brokenness. And we should work hard to avoid the problem of the celebrity pastor. We were sitting having dinner with some friends in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada this summer when they asked us how we responded to the news of Ravi's sin. My response shocked them. Actually, it shocked me a little bit as well when it came out of my mouth. Um, that happens sometimes. <laughs> I said I was sad, but not surprised. Now, the shock might have been compounded by the fact that the wife is a doctor and works in the hospital with Ravi's brother. Like I said, he's from our neighborhood. Um, the reason I said... I was sad, it's obvious. As I said at the beginning, the appropriate response to these, these events is shame, and that comes with sadness. Sadness that someone so used of God had fallen so far. Sadness for the victims who had been so deeply wounded. Sadness for the impact that these highly public failings have on the reputation of the church and the gospel. But why did I say, why did I say I was, wasn't surprised? There's a famous saying attributed to Lord Acton, 19th century British historian. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. What he's saying is a, a person's sense of morality tends to lessen as his or her power increases. And this is a general observation about human nature Christians are not exempt from this. Which is why celebrity pastors or Christian celebrities are really dangerous for the church. As their power and influence grows, it's very easy for them to believe that the rules don't apply to them. There are different rules when you're a celebrity. We hear all about it when the big ones fall. And the list I gave at the beginning of this message is evidence of that. But the problem of celebrity pastors isn't just confined to megachurches. It's every church's problem. Scripture talks about the responsibilities of pastors to take on in 1 Timothy 5.17. Those who lead the church well are worthy of double honor. Sadly, in some churches and ministries, what might have begun as honor becomes celebrity. Scott McKnight and Laura Barringer write, Of course, celebrities don't form on their own. Behind every celebrity pastor is an enduring congregation that both loves and supports the celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture also doesn't happen overnight. It begins when a pastor has a driving ambition for, for fame, but it can't take root unless the congregation 
supports that ambition. Unfortunately, many people want their pastor to be a spiritual hero or a celebrity at some level. They not only want it, they often expect it and find themselves believing it about their pastor. That's a very dangerous place for a church or a ministry to get into because it makes them blind to any failings that the pastor or leader might have. Now, of course, at the opposite extreme, there are churches that abuse their pastors. I had a colleague tell me about an interview he had with a pastoral search committee. Uh, when he raised the question of time off, one of the committee members said, pastors don't get time off. You're on call 24-7 for any crisis. Needless to say, he didn't pursue that position. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about today. So while the ultimate blame for the sins of leaders rests on the leaders themselves, their churches, their boards, their ministries, their followers all share some responsibility for making into something they're not, larger-than-life spiritual heroes. When we're all just servants of God, trying to be obedient to his call. That's why in my own life, um, I prefer to not have people call me Pastor Robin, and I realize that's a losing battle with some people, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, when I was preparing for ordination, uh, I actually did an exhaustive study of the word pastor, both noun and verb in the New Testament, and I discovered something. It is never a title. It is always a function. It is never a title. None of the New Testament writers we refer to each other using a title, just their name. In fact, the only time that pastor appears as a noun in the New Testament, and it's not re referring either to Jesus or to guys who actually look after sheep, because the word means shepherd, right? Um, is in Ephesians 4. And even there, it's, prob it's possibly just modifying the following word, teacher. Now, I know that I'm in a minority here, but for me, part of the discipline of keeping... Uh, realistic view of myself is to try and avoid having a title because it's very easy we were just a a, a meeting of our organization um that you know thursday friday saturday got back last night um now Marilyn and i have been part of this organization for 43 years um which means that and there's also a lot of people in our organization who are from honor cultures, from South America, from Central Asia, from South Asia. And there is a level of honor that is um, given, A, because I have white hair, B, because I've been part of the organization for 43 years, C, because we were involved in establishing ministries in a couple of places. And so we were honored in a couple of times in public in that, in that meeting. And I always have to remind myself that the honor belongs to Jesus, not to me. John Stott had a huge influence on the evangelical church in the second half of the 20th century and on into the beginning of this century. Along with Billy Graham, he founded the Lausanne Movement, essentially wrote the Lausanne Covenant, which is a foundational document for global evangelicalism. I've personally benefited from his sermons and studies and his work on preaching. 
One writer remembers hearing him being introduced in glowing terms. When the person doing the introduction, you know, they just went on and on and on about how wonderful John Stott was. When he had finished, John Stott said quietly, you don't know my heart. The person seeking to do the, this person doing the introduction was actually make, trying to make Stott into a celebrity. And John Stott refused to take that road. Having once said, pride is without doubt the greatest temptation of Christian leaders. I'll say that again. Pride is without doubt the greatest temptation of Christian leaders. He was aware of that temptation and there was never a hint of scandal attached to him. And that's true for the vast majority of people in ministry that I know. That they're aware that they are just servants of the Lord. They are aware that whatever good they bring is God's grace operating through their lives. But Stott's right. The greatest temptation for Christian leaders is pride. And if they have ambition for fame and a, and a community that feeds that, we end up with things like Bruxy and Ravi and all that kind of stuff. It's something to be aware of. I decided to address this topic not because I wanted to, but because people kept raising it with me. Okay? So, you know, how do we respond when high-profile Christian leaders fall into sin? And perhaps they don't even fall into, you know, extreme forms of sin, but they behave in ways that are unchristlike, acting like kings rather than servants, with, you know, a sense of entitlement, throwing their weight around, receiving inappropriate praise. And like I said, that isn't just you know, restricted to high-profile profile leaders. It's a temptation every leader faces. So first of all, we need to own the shame that comes to the church in these situations. We are part of the same body, and that means we share in the shame. Second, we need to remember that all truth is God's truth. Even when it's spoken by unbelievers, even when it's spoken by Christian leaders who turn out to be hypocrites, living, living a secret life, doesn't necessarily affect the truth of what they said. Third, we need to own our own brokenness, especially if we're in positions of leadership. There but for the grace of God go I is a healthy response to the news of another leader's fall. And we need to allow leaders to be known for who they are, not to make them feel that they can't be vulnerable. Okay? And finally, we need to be on our guard against the temptation to make our leaders into separate celebrities. We're not. We're ordinary people seeking to be faithful to God's call in our lives. Now, as I close, I want to leave the door open um, to talk more about these things. Um, and it's, we're having um, food downstairs after the service. Um, 
if you want to continue this conversation, well, I was going to say, if you want to continue this conversation, it's been a monologue so far. Um, <laughs> if, you want to if you want to continue to talk about this, um, then grab something to eat and come and see me in the garden. I realize that for some people, this may be a traumatic topic. But yeah, let's, let's, let's continue to walk in openness with one another. And please, I say this as the pastor, lead pastor here, challenge me, ask me difficult questions. It's, it's actually the only way to guard against these kinds of things happening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, Lord, we grieve with you over the, the failures of your leaders. Lord, we grieve with you because we know that you're grieved, not just for them, but for your church, for the reputation of the gospel, for so much, Lord. And Lord, we want to be aware of the dangers um, that lead to these kinds of failures. Particularly, Lord, I want to pray for protection for, for leaders, whoever they are. And the best kind of protection is accountability and being asked hard questions. Lord, I pray for pastors and leaders to have friends. So, so often it's hard for people in those kinds of situations to just have friends. It's an ordinary friendship because somehow or other, they're always the leader. They're always the pastor. There's always a, an image that feel, they feel they have to project. So Lord, I pray that you would give those in leadership real friendships where they can be honest and open with people. Because Lord, it's, it takes such a toll on your church and on the gospel. Talking about leaders, Lord, world leaders this week were um, in the COP27 conference uh, seeking to come to some kind of agreement about response to climate change. And Lord, we thank you for the, that there's been some kind of agreement on who pays for the consequences of climate change. Um, things like the horrendous floods in Pakistan recently. So Lord, I pray for the, the details of that being worked out in a way that actually helps people who have lost their livelihoods and helps people who are, who are in harm's way. Lord, we pray for the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Lord, that you'd see a, we would see a just end to that war. And more immediately, Lord, we pray for the orphans here in Antalya and for those who reach out to them and minister to them and support them. Pray your blessing upon them, Lord. Amen. Lord, we pray for the, uh, we thank you for the, the, the ceasefire in Ethiopia is, is holding. And we thank you, Lord, that um, food aid is getting into people who need it. Pray that the ceasefire will continue to hold. And it would be the first step towards a resolution there. And Lord, we pray again for the parents who came up this morning and, and dedicated their children and themselves to following you. 
Give them all the grace they need, we pray. Amen.